0: Hello everyone and welcome to the October 1st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I am John Castro, a Workers' Compensation Hearing Representative with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the WCAB must follow the rating schedule steps as it overturned a total disability award. Here's what happened in the case of the Department of Corrections versus the WCAB and Dean Fitzpatrick. The WCJ found Dean Fitzpatrick to be 100% permanently totally disabled as a result of injury to his heart and psyche sustained during the course of his employment as a correctional officer. The award was based on the reports of two doctors regarding Fitzpatrick's injury, Peter Chang Singh for his heart and Richard Lieberman for his psyche. Chang Singh rated Fitzpatrick's WPI for his heart at 75% and his resulting permanent disability at 97%. Lieberman rated Fitzpatrick's GAF score at 45, resulting in 40% WPI and permanent disability of 71% for his psyche. It was undisputed that the combined rating under the combined value chart was 99% permanent partial disability less than 100% that was awarded. Dr. Lieberman felt that applicant was totally and permanently disabled on strict psychiatric grounds and said he was dubious that Fitzpatrick would return to work in any capacity. The ALJ concluded, using language from Labor Code section 4662B, that in accordance with the facts, applicant is permanently totally disabled. The judge did not mention or discuss the combined rating under the 2005 schedule for rating permanent disability and no vocational expert presented evidence in the case. The board affirmed the decision, however, the court of appeal reversed in the published case. The question presented on appeal is whether the board correctly interpreted and applied labor code section 4660 and 4662B. Section 4662b provides that in non-conclusively presumed permanent totally disabled cases, permanent total disability may be found in accordance with the facts. This section does not address how such a determination shall be made. Read plainly, it merely provides that a determination of permanent total disability shall be made on the facts of the case. Then Section 4660 addresses how the determination on the facts shall be made in each case. A final permanent disability rating is obtained by going through the steps outlined in the 2005 schedule for rating permanent disabilities. The Court of Appeal interpretation of Section 4660 and 4662 Subdivision B is squarely at odds with the WCAB's interpretation of those statutes in the 2012 panel decision of Coca-Cola Enterprises Inc versus WCAB Haramil upon which it relied thus the court of appeal disapproved of Haramil and annulled the board's opinion here in FitzPatrick for the same reasons and now our fraud report a 43-year-old Rashimar Salazar who lives in Woollen Hills was sentenced for workers compensation insurance fraud Salazar pled no contest to one count of felony workers' compensation insurance fraud in August. Salazar was sentenced to 30 days in county jail, two years felony probation, and 40 hours of community service, and was also ordered to pay restitution of more than $9,000. Salazar was injured while working for Woodland Hill Residential Services in February 2014. She received more than $13,000 in temporary total disability payments for lost wages due to the injury. But it was later discovered that Salazar was also working separately for a private customer while she was receiving TTD payments. Salazar intentionally withheld this information from the Workers' Compensation Insurance Company in order to continue receiving TTD payments. This fraudulent conduct went unnoticed until the Special Investigation Unit for CompWest Insurance started investigating Salazar's claim. This case was then investigated by the Yolo County District Attorney's Workers' Compensation Insurance Fraud Investigator and prosecuted by Yolo County District Attorney's Office. Health Management Associates will pay more than $260 million to resolve criminal charges and civil claims related to a scheme to defraud the United States. The government alleged that HMA knowingly billed government health care programs for inpatient services that should have been billed as outpatient or observation services and paid kickbacks to physicians in return for patient referrals. Health Management Associates was acquired by Community Health Systems, a major U.S. hospital chain, in January 2014 after the alleged conduct at HMA occurred. In addition, An HMA subsidiary, Carlisle HMA, formerly doing business as Carlisle Regional Medical Center, has agreed to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. HMA admitted that it instituted a formal and aggressive plan to improperly increase overall emergency department inpatient admissions at all HMA hospitals. As part of the plan, HMA set mandatory company wide admissions rating benchmarks for patients presenting to its hospital's emergency departments solely to increase HMA revenue. HMA executives and HMA hospital administrators executed the scheme by pressuring, coercing, and introducing physicians and medical directors to meet the mandatory admissions rate benchmarks and to admit patients who did not need inpatient admissions through a variety of means, including by threatening to fire physicians and medical directors if they did not increase the number of patients admitted. The civil settlement also resolves allegations that two HMA hospitals provided kickbacks in return for patient referrals. HMA agreed to pay $93.5 million to resolve these civil allegations, with the United States receiving $88 million, and the state of Florida receiving $5.5 million. Barrett Business Services has agreed to pay a $1.5 million civil penalty to resolve accounting fraud allegations brought by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. BBSI is a publicly traded company that provides human resources and other business management services. It reported $920 million in revenue last year and profits of $22.5 million. Clients hire BBSI to process payroll and payroll taxes to provide workers' compensation coverage and to perform other business administration and consulting services. It has over 50 offices in 12 states and lists 24 offices in Northern and Southern California. According to the SEC settlement, BBSI's former Chief Financial Officer, James Douglas Miller, hit negative trends in BBSI's financial by concealing the company's workers' compensation expense and liabilities. The SEC said former controller Mark Cannon approved improper journal entries created by Miller to manipulate BBSI's tax expenses. Separately, Cannon agreed to pay a $20,000 penalty. Concurrently, federal prosecutors announced they would have obtained a criminal indictment against Miller, who has been accused of falsifying financial reports. Miller serves as the CFO of BBSI from 2008 to 2016. He was fired in 2016 when he disclosed to the company that he had falsified entries in the company's books to improperly report workers' compensation as payroll taxes and fees. As a result of Miller's accounting, improprieties, BBS underreported approximately $12 million in workers' compensation expenses in 2013. Miller allegedly profited on BBSI stock by exercising stock options. On the four different occasions, Miller falsely certified periodic reports and filed with the SEC that contained a number of false statements. However, his attorneys say that Mr. Miller will be pleading not guilty to the charges and defending the matters vigorously. Willful certification of a false periodic report is punishable up to 20 years in prison and a fine of up to $5 million. And in regulatory news, the California Department of Insurance has approved a universal claim certification program from Claims and Litigation Management Alliance, which designated to streamline the licensing process for independent insurance adjusters. The UCC makes the process of licensing independent insurance adjusters who wish to acquire and manage their independent insurance adjuster's licenses in multiple states more efficient. The UCC does not replace an independent insurance adjuster license, but makes the process of securing a license more efficient. Both licensed and unlicensed individuals can acquire a UCC. However, unlicensed individuals must go through an intensive training by completing a 40-hour online pre-certification education program and successfully pass an examination to earn UCC. The universal claim certification process is designated to streamline the independent insurance adjuster's licensing process and reduce costs. Also, the UCC program sets requirements for licenses that exceed the requirement under current California law since it requires licenses to complete more consulting more continuing education. Concurrently, independent insurance adjuster applicants are not required to complete any pre-licensing education. For a license to maintain the UCC, the independent insurance adjuster must complete 24 hours of continuing education every two years including five hours of insurance law and ethics. The UCC program Insurance law and ethics requirements exceed California's required three hours of law and ethics that is part of and not in addition to the 24-hour continuing education requirement. Once independent insurance adjusters acquire the UCC, they will be able to more quickly obtain a license in the states where the UCC currently approved, including Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, and now California. This will allow out-of-state adjusters to be more readily available when a natural disaster occurs. The Claims and Litigations Management Alliance is an insurance industry association with more than 45,000 members that focuses on education and resources. CLM offers over 300 live courses, events, and conferences annually. The DWC has adopted amendments to the official medical fee schedule for physicians and non-physician practitioners services to replace the average statewide geographic adjustment factor with local geographic adjustment factors. The locality-specific geographic adjustment factors, known as the Geographic Practice Cost Index, was implemented by Medicare in 2017 as part of its Metropolitan Statistical Area Program. Geographic Practice Cost Index is used along with relative value units by Medicare to determine allowable payment amounts for medical procedures. Fee-for-Services Medicare payments to physicians and certain other licensed clinical practitioners are adjusted for geographic differences in market conditions and business costs. These geographic adjustments are intended to ensure that payment to providers reflect the local cost of providing care so that the Medicare program does not overpay in certain areas and underpay in others. Each of the three components of the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, Physician Work, Practice Expense, and Malpractice Insurance is adjusted for differences across geographic areas in the input prices related to each component. When they are combined, these three components are known as the geographic adjustment factor. The payment adjustments are made for 89 different geographic areas in the United States. Some are defined according to metropolitan areas, but there are 34 statewide payment areas that include both metropolitan and non-metropolitan areas. Any changes must be budget neutral. In practice, Budget neutrality requires that the total amount of payment be unaffected by new adjustments. Any adjustments upward for one payment area must be paid for by a downward adjustment for other areas. This requirement creates significant tensions amongst providers in high versus low cost areas. Other major sources of disagreement is whether the geographic adjusters should be used as policy levers to apply influence provider supply, particularly in non-metropolitan areas. The DWC says that adoption of the geographical practice cost index will improve payment allowance accurately by reflecting the resources required to provide a service according to specific regions. The amendments also make minor clarification revisions to the regulations. The DWC will hold a public meeting on Wednesday, October 17th to discuss the structure of a new medical legal fee schedule for the workers' compensation system. The fee schedule is used to compensate physicians for examinations and reports that decide issues of compensability for work-related injuries. The DWC posted a notice of pre-ruling proposed amendments to the current medical legal fee schedule in an open forum on May 3rd and says it received an overwhelming response by the workers' compensation community, with most respondents requesting an overhaul of the entire medical legal fee schedule. There were no changes to the amount of the fee schedule payments in the May proposed amendments to the regulations. It did clarify the use of the complexity factors related to causation, medical research, record review, and apportionment. The factors that indicate the presence of extraordinary circumstances in a medical legal evaluation were more clearly defined. The language required in a report to define extraordinary circumstances was explained and realistic limits on certain areas of billing are to be implemented. The characterization of the response of physicians to the proposal as overwhelming is an understatement. The document containing the written responses is 520 pages. For the most part, physicians claim they are not paid enough for QME medical legal work. The October meeting is intended to respond to this input and develop next steps for revising the fee schedule. DWC seeks input from stakeholders who will be affected by the final version of the medical legal fee schedule. The division is particularly interested in determining the best format for the new fee schedule to offer optimum benefits for all stakeholders, and to identify representatives to participate in small pre-ruling meetings to further develop the best format for the new medical legal fee schedule. The public meeting is scheduled for October 17th at 10 a.m. in the Elihu Harris Building in Oakland, California. Meeting attendees will be allowed to up to three minutes to express their ideas on changes to the fee schedule. Written comments can also be submitted at the public meeting or mailed to the Division of Workers' Compensation. Governor Brown has signed a new provision that applied to California workers' compensation benefits. Here are highlights of the new law that will take effect next January. AB 1749 provides workers' compensation for off-duty peace officers and was created as a result of the October 1, 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas. The new law provides that an employer is not precluded from accepting liability for compensation for an injury sustained by a peace officer by reasons of engaging in the apprehension of law violators outside the state of California. AB 2046 requires data sharing between governmental agencies involved in combating workers' compensation fraud, and grants the Fraud Assessment Commission discretion to augment an assessment with unused funds from a prior year's assessment. SB 880 would authorize an employer, with the written consent of the employee, to deposit disability indemnity payments for the employee in a prepaid card account. SB 1086 deletes the January 1, 2019 date of repeal of Section 5406.7, so the extended time limits will now apply to firefighters and peace officers' death cases after January 2019. Governor Brown has vetoed several bills passed by the legislature that pertain to California workers' compensation benefits. Here are highlights of what he chose not to sign into law. He vetoed AB 479, which would have set limits to apportionment of permanent disability in cases involving breast cancer. The veto message notes that it is similar to the three provision measures that he had vetoed before. He also vetoed AB 553, which would have required the Department of Industrial Relations to completely disperse $120 million annually from the workers' compensation return-to-work fund to eligible eligible injured workers. The veto message noted that the Return to Work program began in 2015 and is relatively new. He was concerned that this measure proposes sweeping revisions to the Return to Work program that are premature. Also, he vetoed AB 1697, which would have required the DIR to establish an anti-fraud unit within the DWC. The veto message notes that the workers required by this measure is already underway. He also vetoed SB 899, which would have precluded a physician from using race, gender, or national origin as the basis for apportionment. The governor vetoed this bill for many of the same reasons that he returned a similar measure in 2011. And in medical news, five years after he was paralyzed in a snowmobile accident, a man has learned to walk again aided by an electrical implant in a potential breakthrough for spine injury sufferers. A team of doctors at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota say the man sent commands from his brain to transfer weight and maintain balance, all previously thought impossible for paralyzed patients. The man is completely paralyzed from the waist down and cannot move or feel anything below the middle of his torso. Doctors implanted a small electrical device in the man's spine. The wirelessly operated implant, about the size of an AA battery, generates electrical pulses to stimulate nerves that have been permanently disconnected from the brain. Within weeks of the device being switched on, the man began to take his first steps since the accident but was still suspended in a harness. After several more sessions of rehab and physiotherapy, he was able to support most of his own body weight and take steps on a treadmill. Although the device was able to help generate power and control in the patient's lower body, it did nothing to restore sensation in his legs. Without the physical feelings of walking, registering in the brain, it was hard for him to make the instantaneous balance adjustment most of us make when thinking. The team overcame the problem by installing mirrors at knee height so the patient could see what position his legs were while he was walking. Eventually, the man was able to walk on the treadmill with only periodic glances down at his legs. While the device's effect is remarkable, the man is still paralyzed once the implant is turned off. The study was conducted in conjunction with the University of California, Los Angeles and was partially funded by the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation. Christopher Reeves, best known for starring role in Superman film, was left paraplegic after a horse-riding accident in 1995. Incidence rates for deaths directly attributed to negligent medical care have not been recognized in any standard method for collections of national statistics. In 1949, the U.S. adopted an international form that used international classification of diseases, ICD billing codes, to tally causes of death. The medical coding system was designed to maximize billing for physician services, not to collect national health statistics. At that time, it was under-recognized that diagnostic errors, medical mistakes, and the absence of safety could result in someone's death. And because of that, medical errors were unintentionally excluded from national health statistics. Researchers say that since that time national mortality statistics have been tabulated using billing codes which don't have a built-in way to recognize incidence rates of mortality due to medical care gone wrong. In their study the researchers examined four separate studies that analyzed medical death rate data including one by the US Department of Health and Human Services offices of the Inspector General and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Then, using hospital admission rates, they extrapolated that based on a total of more than 35 million hospitals and found that one-quarter of a million deaths stemmed from a medical error. The newly calculated figure for medical errors puts the cause of death behind cancer but ahead of respiratory disease. Top-ranked causes of death, as reported by the CDC, inform our country's research funding and public health priorities and researchers say that cancer and heart diseases get more of the attention. Since medical errors do not appear on the list, the problem does not get the funding and attention it deserves. The researchers caution that most of the medical errors are not due to inherently bad doctors and that reporting these errors should not be addressed by punishment or legal action. Rather, they say, most errors present systematic problems, including poorly coordinated care, fragmented insurance networks, the absence of underuser or safety nets, and other protocols. That's all of the news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, ipad or android device by searching for work comp academy with your podcast software we also publish a daily flash briefing on the amazon alexa echo platform search for workers compensation news on amazon again i'm john castro a workers compensation hearing representative with floyd scaran and langevin thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news